Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and when I was on the school board here in San Francisco back in the day, superintendent was this brash New Yorker, Bill Rojas, was fond of colorful quotes. And I distinctly remember him saying in some lawsuit that we were involved in, says, it's good to know the law, it's better to know the judge. And that has always stayed with me, and I think it's been quite accurate, actually. And so that in terms of this period in time, in terms of statewide elections, the judge is the secretary of state. That's the person who determines what's fair and legal, the referee of the contest. In 2018 in Georgia, the person judging the race was also the person running in the race. Brian Kemp was the secretary of state. He was running against Stacey Abrams. And as Secretary of State, he purged 300,000 people from the voting rolls and, surprise, surprise, he won that race by 54,000 votes. Note here that they're likely a rematch this year. Stacey is running again, StaceyAbrams.com, to take the position she should have had in 2018. But that type of voter suppression is a very long history in this country. As you've referenced on previous pods or wrapping up the manuscript from my book, we talk about the Confederate battle plan, which has been a consistent, uninterrupted approach of how you try to preserve this country as a white nationalist country. And a core part of that has been what I call ruthlessly rewrite the laws. And they've done that in myriad ways from redoing state constitutions to redoing ways people can vote. We used to have white, white only primaries in this country. There's poll taxes and all manner of efforts to be able to reduce and suppress votes of people of color. And so this is happening again now. After the 2020 election, Trump and the Republicans lost Georgia, they lost Arizona, they lost the Senate, lost the White House. And so they have been on this spree of rewriting the laws to try to, again, suppress participation of the multiracial majority of the electorate. And then most recently, right, the Voting Rights Act has always been a critical tool in this, was created to combat this type of suppression. We were unable to get through the Senate of strengthening the Voting Rights Act to give the federal government the tools to combat that. And so a lot of people have been saying, well, what do we do now that we couldn't get the Voting Rights Act passed? What are our next steps? And so that's what our topic is going to be today. And we have the perfect guest to talk with us about this is that we have the woman who is literally followed in the footsteps of Stacey Abrams and is now representing the same district in Georgia that Stacey did. And she is running to be Georgia's Secretary of State, the judge. Position that will put her on the front lines of the fight to preserve democracy going forward. And so for our conversation, which I'm very much looking forward to, I'm joined as always by my co-host, Charlene Chang. Hi, Charlene. How are you? Can you believe it's February? And do you want to introduce our guest? Hey, Steve. No, I kind of can't believe it's February, and I would love to introduce our guest. I'm really looking forward to talking to her. We are going to, again, be in conversation today with our guest, B. Wynn, and I've been wanting to talk to her ever since she announced her candidacy for Secretary of State for Georgia. That was last May. Yes, I and think every month you've brought up, yes, can we get B. Wynn on the pod? That's right. I'm like, yo, team, when are we going to get B. Wynn? People are like, we know, we know. And uh, we are, I feel really lucky because she's obviously a very busy person. And we kind of asked her a little bit short notice. And we thought, well, it's a, it's a bit of a um, stretch. We're asking her a little bit on short notice. And lo and behold, we got lucky. She has time for us today. And I just wanted to give some context for myself personally. When I think back, the reason why I was particularly moved and saying to our team, I really want to get B. Win on, this woman on, is because last spring, if you'll remember, it was an emotional time for myself and a lot of Asian Americans. 
There was rise in anti-Asian hate in the wake of primarily, you know, Trump making a lot of like racist and xenophobic comments about the COVID pandemic being tied to people in China, you know, calling it the Kung flu virus, and then just a rise in attacks and discrimination and all sorts of terrible things happening to different Asian Americans. And that was the same spring when tragically um, and terribly eight people were shot and killed in Atlanta, including six women of Asian descent. And that was, again, in the Atlanta area. It wasn't in Atlanta, but it was in the Atlanta area. So it was, for me and a lot of people, just really inspiring and a much-needed bit of good news to hear that this young Asian-American woman in Georgia was going to run for Secretary of State this year. And I love this sort of what feels like poetic justice, very exciting matchup that you know this is the same seat that the current Georgia governor, Brian Kemp, held last. So yeah, the fact that it's possible that B could be the next Secretary of State of Georgia um, or, you know, it's just the idea that this is a script that could get flipped is just really exciting. And yeah, maybe I'm just a little bit still uh, bitter about Kemp. Um, so just a little bit of background about her. B. Wynn is a Georgia State House representative. She took over Stacey Abrams' seat in the State House in 2017. Since Election Day 2020, she has emerged as a leader in the fight against voter suppression. B is the daughter of Vietnamese refugees, and she's the first Vietnamese-American elected to the Georgia House of Representatives. If she wins the Secretary of State seat this November, she'll be the first Asian-American to hold a statewide office in Georgia ever in Georgia's history. If she wins her primary on May 24th or a primary runoff that's scheduled for June 21st, she would face incumbent Republican Brad Raffensperger, who earned you know, he did earn bipartisan respect after he did resist uh, Trump's demands after the outcome of the state's presidential vote. And he's being challenged in the Republican primary. So he, she could also possibly face Republican Georgia House Rep Jody Heiss, who is, in fact, a hardcore Trump ally. B was born in Iowa. She grew up in Augusta, Georgia, and attended Georgia State University. She was previously the executive director of a nonprofit organization she founded called Athena Warehouse, and that was a program to educate and empower girls in under-resourced communities. I just think that's so cool. So welcome, B, and thanks again so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Steve and Charlene. And of course, you know, the feeling is mutual. I have been following your podcast and y'all's work um, on protecting our democracy and really uplifting the importance of what is happening all around our country. And so I was in Augusta, Georgia on the campaign trail when, um, you know, I got the message about coming on the podcast and I said, count me in, I am there. So thank you so much for the opportunity. Well, we're delighted to have you. And as you know, Charlene was saying, it's um, you know, she she has been on the on the case for this for a while, and that as we've talked on previous, I'm like, get, one of get the, the sister on, man. Yes, one of the first, <laughs> well, one of our very first episodes was with Stacy, and as you know, as we've talked frequently about, we've been on this Georgia journey um, with her and with, by extension, you know, the larger progressive network there for a decade now, and so we're just thrilled to connect with and be in, in relationship with all of those who are carrying on that work. Also, you know, I know I'm not the typical statewide candidate running in Georgia. I say all the time, I said, I'm a 40 year old Asian American woman running statewide in Georgia. 
I think I, I'm actually only Asian candidate running on either side of the aisle for any statewide office in Georgia. Um, and so certainly it's important to, you know, talk about the dynamics of what that means as well. And so Charlene, thank you for so thoughtfully weaving in just your reflections on what has been happening within the AAPI community and especially around the spa shooting that occurred in Atlanta last year. Yeah, you're just you're inspiring. So I, I have a 10-year-old daughter and I'm sure you're already aware of this, but just the fact that you are out there doing what you're doing, you're inspiring an entire generation. I just know it. I've been telling my daughter about you and representation matters and to show young people what's possible from whatever backgrounds they come from. So that's, it's just, it's it's exciting. I I wanted to ask you, first of all, how are you reacting to the recently failed Senate vote on protecting voting rights? I know this is a area of your, you know, concern and area that you've been really working on. So how's that landing for you? And what can you share with us about where you're at? You know, I would, I I have to admit, I was quite naive when um, Georgia delivered these two wins in January of 2021. Um, When we sent Senator Ossoff and Senator Warnock to the Senate, one of the first things I thought was, oh, a huge sigh of relief. We can finally pass federal voting rights protection. I knew that the Georgia General Assembly would go into session and that they would pass some form of a voter suppression bill. What that looked like, I was not sure uh, of at the time. But I remember feeling this, you know, sigh of relief. We organized this hard. We worked this hard because we needed to send Senator Ossoff and Warnock to the Senate to give us a majority to pass federal voting rights protection. What I did not anticipate was how long it took for the issue to become front and center for us. Um, I think that was something that really reflects, you know, how hard it is to be in Georgia, watching everything that's happening on the ground and feeling like we're not getting the federal support that we need. I felt it was important to bring the bill up for a vote, even though it failed. And like any movement, we know that change doesn't happen in one election cycle. It doesn't happen with one vote. And the fight for federal voting rights protection is still ongoing. And we have to remember when we look at the past and we look at the movements of the past, it was never easy. It was always an uphill battle. But we still have to fight just as hard, even if we're not getting the results that we want to see. That's that's right. I mean, I think that's a good thing to keep in mind, even though it's been definitely painful, not, not an easy thing to have to go from the fact that many of us were just like you. And we're like, we got this in the bag. <laughs> I'm feeling really hopeful. And then well, you, need the, you, need the, you should be working on a book on the history of suppression in this country. Right. So Abraham Lincoln the signer of the Emancipation Proclamation, the man whose election precipitated the Civil War, in his trying to figure out what to do about, you know, Black people and our place within this country, he actually brought someone to the White House and asked that person to go do the calculations to figure out how much it would cost to ship Black people back to Africa. So the level of commitment from the federal government towards justice and equality in this country has not always been a given or a constant. The fight continues. Be my next question is a two-parter. First of all, can you briefly tell us about your own background and why you got involved in politics? Sure. So I'm the daughter of Vietnamese refugees. My parents came over here in the late 70s. And during the time in which the final years that my parents lived in Vietnam, my dad was actually part of the wave of Vietnamese people who were incarcerated in what they called re-education camp. He was held for three years. He was a lieutenant in the medical army. And when Saigon fell, 
he was given the option of turning himself in and he was told, look, you're going to go in for two weeks. You're going to learn about your new form of government and then you'll be released and you will be back with your family and you can get back to work and get back to life. So he turned himself in willingly and that two weeks turned into three years. He was held in a remote jungle communication cut off with family and friends for the first six months and then subjected to hard labor and starvation. And who else oh. Who knows what else happened? He doesn't really talk about it. But when he was released, my family took a boat in the middle of the night and fled their country um, in search of civil liberties that we have here today that are under attack right now. I grew up in Augusta, Georgia. I grew up in a very typical immigrant household. It was keep your head down, study hard. You better not make any waves. You better stay out of trouble. And this fear of government, um, the fear of participation um, politically, that was something that, you know, was present in our family. So my family never talked about the importance of casting your right to vote at the ballot box to demand the changes that we wanted to see for our community or for ourselves. That led me to a totally different career path than what my parents envisioned for me. What I fundamentally felt as a kid was helplessness, though I couldn't really express it or understand it until I was an adult. I watched my parents, two courageous people, be treated as less than because of their heavy accents. I was their translator at the grocery store. When they had any kind of issues, I had to pick up the phone and call billing companies to help them straighten it out. And it was really hard to watch my parents shrink, my, especially my mom. She just made herself smaller. Mm-hmm. And I felt that I did not want that to happen to other people. And I also did not want other young people to feel that same sense of helplessness that I did. And so I started a nonprofit. I served as the executive director for 10 years and worked in public schools in Atlanta and DeKalb and came to see that our General Assembly, this entity that is supposed to be making policy decisions to support Georgians, they were continually defunding our public education school system and refusing to expand Medicaid, along with not really thinking about how students need secure housing and they need public transit and they need livable wages so that they can graduate and go to college. And at some point, as I was working in the classroom, I realized there were so many other students in the same position and that what I could do through direct service work was limited and that I had to get involved on the policy side. So when Stacy decided to run for governor in 2017, she left vacant a house seat and I decided to run that year. I'm just, I'm taking in your family story. I, I was so moved. On the personal family story, it's fascinating. The, there's so many like both historical arcs and narratives and intersections, right? And so the United States, you know, going to war in Vietnam and how these things play themselves out over the decades. People don't fully always appreciate it. And it's actually fascinating. I mean, that right. So I'm working on this book and we were, when I, we're looking at Virginia and Tramwin's story. And her father, yes, yep. her father was incarcerated in a Vietnamese uh, right. re-education camp, fled on boats to come to this country, and they're upending politics in Virginia. And Stacey brought Tram down to, to Georgia to help with the elections there. So it's just so interesting, these interconnections. And Steve, just remind the listeners again, Tram's title. Tram's the co-executive director of New Virginia Majority and the really one of the principal leaders of the civic engagement, political work on the progressive side in the state of Virginia. And she's the person who Stacy has tapped twice to come help her in Georgia when Stacy was running for her election and when Warnock and Ossoff were in their runoffs. 
Yeah, they're just I'm really moved and inspired by like these sort of sisters, these daughters of these these families of that particular generation and experience now transforming this. Right, and it puts all of our experiences in. Con- I said I was talking to Tram about this once, and I was like, "Do your parents ever say to you when you when you like complains like?" I had to get in a boat and go across the country. You can't, you should be quiet about what you have to complain about. What did she say? Because that was a pretty common theme. I'm sure they did. Oh, really? sure. That's why, <laughs> no, you, you joke, Steve. I'm like, I'm sure they did hear that. <laughs> oh, yeah. All the time. It was, mm-hmm. you know, pressing upon the sacrifices that they made for us to come to this country. And that yeah. was actually part of something that's pretty complex. You know, this idea that, look, we sacrificed um, so much to come here. We risked our lives to come here. And here you are going to college to become an English major mm-hmm. for you to be an English major. <laughs> yeah. How are you going to feed the family with exactly. an English degree? <laughs> exactly. But what, the, you know, at, at the heart of it, it was, we never want you to be in the same situation as we were, which That's is right. we not have what we needed economically. And we do not want our children to experience the same poverty that we experience. Yeah. No, I, I think every every parent of color, certainly of a certain generation, has had that conversation with their children. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Let me ask you, if I can, what made you decide to run for the seat of Secretary of State specifically? You know, it was not part of my life plan. And I think I'm one of those people who, as I was growing up, I was not, I didn't feel specifically like I was very good at one thing or the other. I didn't feel like I just had to be a doctor or a lawyer or like my sister, she's a really good artist. And she knew that she had this gift and she was going to do something that enable her to utilize those talents. Um, What I have always felt was, what is it that I'm passionate about? What kind of work gives me meaning and have followed the pathways to, you know, do the work that I felt would effectuate some level of change. As a state lawmaker, I had no idea that during the time in which I have served that voting rights would be front and center. And this Mm -hmm. house who's Republican, he's the person who assigns us to committees. And as a Democrat, oftentimes the committees you request are not the ones that you actually get. And so I was assigned to governmental affairs and little did I know how busy this committee would be. It's the committee that oversees election bills. And so the first few legislative sessions, there was always a bill introduced to make it harder to vote. They try to eliminate Sunday voting. They try to roll back our city of Atlanta municipal voting hours from 8 p.m. to 7 p.m. And we built coalitions and worked side by side with advocacy groups. And in fact, with Senator Warnock, I remember rallying with him on one of these voter suppression bills before he was elected. And we were able to successfully beat those things back. Everything changed in 2020. And I had a a front seat. I was immersed in election laws. I understood exactly the intent of why Republicans were trying to sow seeds of doubt around vote by mail. And I watched these laws transpire in real time. I've done hundreds of hours of voter protection work. And I think that is critically important because you get to see in real time how laws make it harder for people to vote. You're a witness to this, right? And so it was really when Rudy Giuliani and Trump's legal team came into our legislative session and presented their case to overturn the results of the election I was hunkered down in my office for days ahead of that meeting, going over this federal lawsuit to overturn the results of the election and looking at this exhibit that had listed 
names of Georgians that they were accusing of having committed voter fraud, which is a felony, and contacting those voters who had no idea their names were on this lawsuit. And, and following that hearing, you know, my address was doxxed, put on a right wing gun site. I had to make a safety plan. I had the usual, wow. and, you know, harassment that people of color and women of color get. But also added to that was, you know, the calls for my execution. And I'm sitting here thinking, oh my God, I was like, this is happening to people all over our country, not just to elected officials, but our election workers. And then, you know, we go into legislative session January 6th, I thought might be a precipice, right? Like maybe my colleagues on the other side of the aisle would understand that the campaign and the efforts to push forward the big lie would be detrimental and continue to be detrimental to our country. And perhaps they would change the direction of where their party was headed. But they didn't do that. They just doubled down on it. And because of those reasons that after that legislative session, I decided to run for this seat because I do feel, you know, as we're talking about federal voting rights, the other thing that we need to talk about is how these secretary of state seats in our swing states, Georgia, Arizona, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, those are ways that we can safeguard our democracy. And if we don't win in swing states, you know, I fear for what our future is going to look like. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about kind of break down because the, the way I think people in the public experienced, you know, some general sense, but not in great detail that these this legislation was passing in Georgia and Arizona and Texas and other states with coincidentally large numbers of people of color. And then there was this, you know, well, certainly from my point of view, timidity in terms of the Democrats to aggressively and directly take this on. But I don't think people necessarily know the nitty gritty of how this really plays itself out. So can you talk a little bit about what it is that they actually have passed in terms of suppressing the vote. And then I guess linked to that is like, what are your thoughts around how that we do go about trying to counterbalance that and continue to make it possible for people to vote? Yeah, I see it as a number of things, right? There's voter suppression, there's the subversion of democracy, there's voter intimidation, and all of those things are happening all at once. And they're intended to, one, on the front end, make it harder for people to vote. So for example, that two-page bill that turned into a 98-page bill that was passed through the Georgia General Assembly, we heard about some of the provisions, criminalizing handing out a bottle of water to voter waiting in line, which when you think about it, Georgia, in the 2020 election cycle, there were instances of people waiting to vote for four hours, six hours, eight hours, up to 11 hours. Oh my, holy cow. I know who can, there are (laughs) few people who can take 11 hours out of their day and go cast a ballot, right? And so that criminalization piece is intended to instill fear. The fear factor is important because voters are scared of doing the wrong thing. And that is a form of voter suppression. So we know innately it is cruel and illogical to say you can't give somebody a bottle of water while you're waiting in line. We know that the intent is, well, maybe they'll leave the line. But I think something pervasive that is happening is the intimidation part. Yeah. The, the, the bill also attacks the right to vote by mail. In Georgia, Republicans passed legislation years ago that said you can vote by mail with no excuse, and you can vote by mail without an ID requirement. Now, then, then people of color started doing it and they changed their mind. Exactly, exactly. So they used this for many years, right, without saying, oh, well, maybe we need to make some changes to the law. 
In 2020, when we were in a pandemic that's still not over yet, and they understood that Democrats, specifically voters of color, would utilize vote by mail. This law that they put into place, they started to sow seeds of doubt very early on, questioning the security of absentee ballot voting. We had a nonpartisan expert come into committee and she said, vote by mail is the safest way to vote. These are the states who have moved to a primarily vote by mail model and it has increased turnout. And over these years, there are very, very few instances of voter fraud, handfuls of incidences. And the majority of the time it's accidental because it's an older person who forgot they had already voted. So we have all this information, you know, in our hands. We understand that they did not question the validity before Democrats started using vote by mail. And when we learned how to use it, they decided they were going to attack the process. So they shortened the time frame by which a voter can request an absentee ballot. They put the ID provision in, which when we talk about voter ID, what's really important to know is voter ID is in Georgia is verified at the front end. When you go and you register to vote, you are providing an acceptable form of ID, which is why Republicans passed the original bill in the first place, because ID is already verified in the front. Now, they changed those provisions. They have also done a new requirement. We used to be able to go online and input your driver's license number, right, to request your, your absentee ballot. And instead, they put a what they call a wet signature requirement in which would require you to print off a ballot, sign it with pen and paper, and send it back in. So now we're looking at, for instance, I have a printer in my house. It's been broken for a year. And if I need to print something, I have to go to my office. So it's looking at these little barriers of yeah. how it makes it harder for somebody to do this easily. And we already saw the fallout of what it looks like. In our municipal elections, there was analysis done specifically around the absentee ballot voting process. And they said now that Georgians are 45 times more likely to be rejected with vote by mail. Wow. And so that is just some of what is in that bill. The election subversion part, which is more complicated and I think harder for us to digest, right? It's about reconstituting our local election boards. And we know specifically there is an investigation on Fulton County, the most populous county in Georgia. And the bill allows for our state board of elections, which is a Republican controlled state board of elections because uh, the members are appointed by those who are in power. We have one Democrat on the board currently. It would allow the State Board of Elections to suspend Fulton County Election Board, and they would pick one person, one superintendent, to take control of Fulton County Election Boards. And I think we all understand, yes, local election boards set early voting hours, locations. They decide if you are going to have Sunday voting or not. Um, but here's what's also really dangerous. These mass voter challenges which happened in 2021, uh, that conservative group from Texas came down, true the vote. They challenged the voter eligibility of 460,000 voters right before the runoff elections. And local election boards, for the most part, rejected those challenges. If we were to see a scenario in which Fulton County's election board is suspended, they pick one superintendent, that one person gets to make the decision on these massive voter challenges that would go before Fulton County. And that's enough to swing the results of an election. But you're still running in 2022. You hope 
Stacey's running in 2022 in the context of all these different pieces. So what are you, what are you guys doing to try to overcome this level of suppression and, and subversion? So, you know, I think that in Georgia, what we have to do is what we have been doing, except now we're going to have to double down, right? It is investing in our voter protection program so that voters understand these new laws, these new deadlines, and what they need to do to ensure that their ballot is going to count, that they can vote and that their vote will be counted. One of the most important things that I think that people on both sides of the aisle should care about is this idea that if we play by the rules, if we win fair and square, the results of the election needs to be upheld and certified, no matter what side of the aisle you are on. And so that's why the Secretary of State seat is so incredibly important. Because if we look at somebody like Jody Heiss, who is running on the big lie, who already voted against certifying the results of the 2020 election, he's exactly the type of person who would overturn the results of the election, who might find those 11,780 votes. And then we need somebody like Stacey Abrams because we know that she is somebody who can veto any legislation that would come forward as it pertains to voting. And they're not slowing down. And that's the thing. This is not going away. And they are finding more and more ways, and it is a sophisticated operation to overturn the will of the people, to install minority rules. And we've got to win both the governor's seat and the secretary of state seat in order to safeguard our democracy. They are not silver bullets, but they are going to protect us in a way that we need. And if we don't win, then I don't know what happens next. Right. Yeah. So just to lift up that, um, those points, I think for our listeners is, is I think there's a lot of things that need to be done, but two in particular are, well, for one, backing the right candidates who understand these issues and who know how to go about organizing the voters to turn people out, right? So obviously, Stacey is the leader in the country around this. And so, you know, you built an operation in every single county in the state, and we'll be doing that again. So supporting her effort, supporting candidates like B, who's running, you know, similar type of candidacy, which both organizes people, but also, as we were talking about up top, the level of representation mattering and being able to inspire voters is another, I think, component of being able to overcome this. And then another part is investing in the organizations that do the nitty gritty work on the ground to be able to contact, turn out, connect with the voters in these respective communities, right? As we've had on the podcast, you know, previously, and say Ufa from New Georgia Project talked about, you know, the Georgia America Votes Group in, there's Mihente Pack. And then do I have this right, um, be that your sister runs one of the uh, Asian American civic engagement groups in, in Georgia? She does, Steve. My sister, Fee, it's spelled P-H-I. We joke that our mom gave us rhyming names. (laughs) She is the executive director of Asian Americans Advancing Justice, which is one of the most effective organizing groups for Asian Americans in the Southeast. And they have been on the ground for a very long time. And they invest in language outreach, both in person, on the phone, and they run a voter protection program with poll monitors and a hotline that offers information in different languages. Yeah, they do great work. I've heard about them for a while. So I was like, wait, that's that group that people have heard about. Um, (laughs) So we're we're running towards the end of time, but I wanted to ask another question about political strategy or just philosophy or whatnot. So it's the big 
well, I think it's a big battle in democratic politics now around how progressive should you be? How much should you be aligned with and standing with people of color? There's kind of this whole popularism school of thought out there, which the unstated part of that is Democrats should shy away from issues relating to racial justice and equity because those might not be popular and might ask popular with whom. But I think the larger question is, as a progressive, and you you know, be your pretty unapologetically progressive person in terms of how you present yourself and how you put yourself out there in the world, there's a lot of um, conventional wisdom that progressives can't win in a place like Georgia and can't win in the South. So how do you think about you and what's your experience been in terms of how do you communicate with, connect with the electorate as a person who holds progressive values and as a person who you know, by your biography, embody a lot of the things that have been traditionally marginalized and excluded? One, I'm a person of color. So there's no ability to shy away from my commitment to empowering people. Well, tell that to Herschel Walker, but <laughs> that's true. American running for Senate against it's not applicable in all cases, not. but yes, <laughs> no, we, we get your point. Yes. But you know, when it comes to protecting our democracy, I don't think that it is a question of where you fall within the party spectrum, right? I think that being a pro-democracy candidate means that this is an issue that impacts all of us, no matter how we define ourselves, no matter what party we belong to. And I think that when we are talking about protecting the will of the people, we're talking about everybody. We're not, we are talking about every single person in the state of Georgia, because when we dismantle our democracy, that's going to impact our ability to even have these conversations around whether or not we should expand Medicaid, whether or not we should fully fund our public education system. And the reality, you know, Steve, is we can't talk about the history of voting in Georgia or in our country without bringing forward the realities and the facts, which are when our country was created, the only people who could vote were white men who were property owners. I couldn't have voted. I mean, women couldn't have voted. Asian people couldn't have voted. You couldn't have voted. Charlene couldn't have voted. That's a large swath of people. Yeah. And I think the other part of it is there is a lot of consensus on both sides of the aisle about the influence of money and dark money in politics. And it's certainly true with this Secretary of State's race um, when we're looking at what's happening nationally. These groups who have come into our various states and infusing millions of dollars of dark money to subvert the will of the people. I mean, that's what this is about. And I think that as I've been traveling through the state of Georgia and meeting with people all across the state, there is a shared value and a shared desire of, yes, we want free and fair elections. We want to protect our democracy, and we understand that this is not about how you define yourself as a candidate, but it is about how committed you are to this process. And so I do think that it will be a challenging year for us here in Georgia as Democrats, but I also think that there are some unique opportunities being presented. As you had start, said before, Steve, we have a really robust organizing structure in Georgia. And many of the folks who have been organizing have been here for a long time, in part because we were a state that nobody thought could flip. And so the infusion of money has not really been there for Georgia. And so we basically had to build our own organizing infrastructure. That all remains here in Georgia. And so at the end of the day, we have an uphill battle, but I don't think that we are a state where we're going to see 
some of what we saw, you know, in Virginia. We have Stacy at the top of the ticket. We have Warnock and we're building out a really diverse and inclusive what we hope, you know, to see as a general ticket. And part of that is so critically important because when we're talking about building a broad-based coalition, I know what my role will be for the general election. I know that I've got to galvanize young people. I've got to galvanize Asian American voters. Uh, I know that I have language skills to do that. And I'm also a member of IBUW Local 613, a labor union that typically skews Republican. And so I think that connecting with people on this shared issue of for the people, by the people is something that you know, is going to be front and center as I'm talking to Georgians. Before we go, speaking of this year and what's in store, I I wanted to acknowledge that we're currently in the wonderful season of Lunar New Year. And again, Lunar New Year was officially on Monday in Asia this year and Tuesday here in the States and Western Hemisphere. This is the year of the tiger, and it's one of the most powerful signs in the Chinese zodiac. And it's supposed to be a year of action. And I know in the Vietnamese tradition, B, y'all call it Tet, is that right? Yes. I was wondering how your family, you know, any traditions, just real briefly, how you celebrate Tet, what you guys are doing this year, and how it feels to be entering a new year with everything in store. Yeah, so that is traditionally a huge celebration in Vietnam. My parents would share the stories of how everybody got to stay home from school for a week and prepare for the festivities with all the different foods that are cooked. Um, And obviously being in America, there are celebrations, but it looks nothing like it would be in their home country. So as I was traveling in Augusta this weekend, you know, I, I had the opportunity to stay with my parents over the weekend and my sisters drove in yesterday afternoon and we had a lunch celebrating a belated birthday for my dad, but also having a fet celebration. So We had our red envelopes. My sister had the basket of fruits that indicate all the good luck things that are supposed to be associated with the papaya and mangoes and other fruits that um, she brought over to the family. I will be going to the Hawks game tonight to celebrate their Lunar New Year. And then I've got legislative session tomorrow. So I'll, I'll be in session for that. But I will say that I'm excited about Lunar New Year. It's year of the tiger, but the rooster, I'm a rooster, is supposed to have a really good year this year. <laughs> All right. <Woo-hoo. laughs> nice. Promising note. Awesome. Oh, and I also want to throw up, share with our, our listeners the, the data point in terms of the, you mentioned it being an uphill climb, that really the irreversibility of the demographic revolution in this country and what this means, right? So Stacey lost, lost quotes by 54,000 votes in 2018. Since 2018, 500,000 young people have turned 18 and entered the electorate in Georgia. Stacey won among young people by 30 points in 2018. So it's that reality, which is why they're doing all of this voter suppression work, because they can see uh, what did I think Ron Brownstein called it stacking sandbags against the, you know, the, the tide of uh, the demographic revolution. So we just want to, uh, we're going to wrap, um, B, we really want to thank you so much for joining us and really just express uh, our, you know, admiration and appreciation for your political leadership and work. And if people want to 
help out? How do they get connected to your effort? They can visit my website or my social media platforms. It's B for Georgia, B-E-E-F-O-R, and Georgia is spelled out. Unfortunately, I cannot take any campaign contributions during legislative sessions, so I am in a blackout period until April 4th. Um, but you know, these elections are about galvanizing people and talking to voters. So if anyone wants to volunteer or stay connected to our campaign, that is the way to do it. And I have heard people make fun of my handle that they think it's beef or Georgia. <laughs> beef or Georgia. <laughs> and I love that your last name is pronounced Win, which not everybody knows and does. So if nice play on the word and easy to remember when for that's win. right charlene i kept you know I, i've started telling people i said just remember win with win there you that's go right. there takes you out go. the anxiety of trying to pronounce my last name that's right all right well thank you so much for joining us really appreciate it thanks y'all okay that's all the time we have for today and that you know i didn't even fully appreciate we're doing the conversation around just the in to the substance, the symbolic power of this Georgia ticket, right? I mean, Stacey Abrams, the gubernatorial candidate, you know, inspiring progressive Asian American woman, Dean Wynn as secretary of state candidate. This is not your old school Democratic Party. It's going to be, and it's the kind of face and leadership we're going to need in terms of be able to win in Georgia and across the country. So uh, you can follow B um, on Twitter at B for Georgia. And um, as she mentioned in her website as well, is B for Georgia or or Beef or Georgia, which is another angle to it, right? Um, so thank you for listening for uh, to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. Democracy in Color is now on Instagram. You can follow us at Democracy in Color. And if you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please give us a rating and leave a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, we will work to win with win and keep the faith. 